Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew, the second chapter, where the bulletin has that we'll be reading to the twelfth verse, but I've decided that we really should read on. I'd like us to read to the eighteenth verse this morning in Matthew chapter 2. Hear now God's word. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in its rising, and are come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written through the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod privately called the wise men and learned of them exactly what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search out exactly concerning the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I also may come and worship him. And they, having heard the king, went their way. And lo, the star which they saw in its rising went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And they came into the house and saw the young child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Now when they were departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I tell thee, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And he arose and took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the male children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the borders thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had exactly learned of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be comforted, because they are not. Thus far the reading of God's Word. If you were to take a poll on the streets, individuals going into the various markets and stores roundabout to take care of their Christmas shopping, or if you were to go to the local elementary school and talk to the little children there, did a poll among them, and you were to ask this question 
I wonder what response you would get. What is so troubling about Christmas? Now, what response could you expect? I think in many ways you would have adults come up with one line of answer and children with none at all. The only response I can imagine adults coming up with is, you know what's so troubling about Christmas is that I haven't got enough money and enough time to do all the things I have to do and buy all the presents I have. That's what's so troubling about Christmas. And if you were to say, well, no, we weren't thinking of that, what is so troubling about Christmas itself? I think you'd probably get the same kind of blank stare or confused expression that you would from the little children who are asked about. Children don't usually worry about the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, not having enough money or enough time to get the, the gifts and get them wrapped or sent or what have you. Children just see the gift giving and the merrymaking and the parties and the time of year. And I think for most children, it's a very happy time of year. It's something they look forward to. That carries through for many of us who are little children that are grown up. We, we still, despite the hustle and bustle, might enjoy the Christmas season and look forward to it as a time of uh, goodwill toward one another and giving of gifts. And so when we ask what's so troubling about Christmas, it's hard to come up with an answer. What is troubling about Christmas? And yet, Christmas is extremely troubling. It's very troubling in our day. It's troubling in a way that we don't see beneath all the merriment, beneath all of the shallow um, adherence to the Christmas story and the attempt to show peace and goodwill toward men. And that's what I'd like us to consider this morning, the question, what is so troubling about Christmas? And we get a very good answer. Matthew provides a very good answer for us in chapter 2 of his gospel, which we have just read. When he recounts the Christmas story, I'd like us to go through that and see if we can find an answer to our question. Matthew already is telegraphing the problem. Matthew is already telling us what the difficulty is going to be as he opens chapter 2 with these words. And now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of, notice this, Herod the king. These are the days of Herod the king. How does Luke tell us the Christmas story? How does Luke put a time frame upon the story. Of course, Luke, you might say, being a Gentile, takes a broader perspective. Luke's gospel wants to make the point that Jesus is king over all the earth, that he's the savior of men, Jew and Gentile alike. And so it's natural for Luke, when he tells the Christmas story, to put it in the international perspective. And so Luke tells us that when Caesar Augustus, right, is reigning, that a certain census is to be taken, so forth and so on. But now, Matthew, in telling his story, says Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Remember that. And when this happened, wise men from the east, Magi from Persia, Media, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Okay, the use of the word king in both of these verses is already alerting us to the fact we should be thinking in these terms, Herod the king, the days of Herod the king, and now we have strangers, foreigners coming in, inquiring, where is the king of the Jews, the one who has been born as such? It's an interesting historical detail that the wise men, the Magi from the east, did not go to the palace of the king and ask that question. Why not? Wouldn't you? 
Wouldn't you expect that those who are looking for the birth of a king would go to the palace? They'd go to where the kings are to be found. They would expect that this child would be born in the kingly line, right? They'd probably go up to Herod and say, Herod, we, we understand you've had a son or someone has been born in your family that's going to be the king, right? But the Magi don't do that. There's something about the revelation they've received, something about the understanding they have as they come to Jerusalem that puts them off from what might seem common sense, makes them aware of the fact that Herod's not going to be too interested in this, and so the word is going around Jerusalem. You need to understand the political setting in that day if you're to see the importance to Herod of this rumor that's going around. You see, Herod was not a Jew. And nor was he liked among the Jews. In fact, far from being liked, he was despised by the Jews for two very good reasons. First of all, Herod was an Edomite. His family came from Edom. Now, what is Edom? Of course, you have to have some Bible background and history to understand that. Edom was that land, the development of people that arose from Esau. Go all the way back to the days of Jacob and Esau, and you remember that they were divided, and that the blessing came to the younger brother rather than to the older brother, and there's a great deal of hostility then between Jacob and Esau, which then becomes the hostility between two nations, Edom and Israel. Well, Edom is this country then that is in opposition to Israel. They're not on real good terms. And in the days of the Roman takeover of Palestine, this whole general area, uh, Israel and Edom did not get along well. But you see, Israel didn't get along with anyone. As a matter of fact, Israel was real chafing to the Romans as well. They never knew what you could count on from the Israelites. After all, they had this history of the Maccabean revolt, Judas Maccabeus, the hammer who had arisen to deliver God's people from the tyranny of their overlords. So the Romans knew the history of the Jews. They knew what they were capable of. And when the Jews would not get along with the Romans well, and when they couldn't take care of their own internal problems, then the Romans appointed a governor in Edom over the Jews. Now that governor was originally Antipater, Herod's father. He was appointed over all of Palestine and he made his own son, Herod, the ruler over Galilee. Well, then when Herod's father died, Herod had aspirations. He wanted a greater piece of property to rule over. In particular, he wanted the property that filled all of what we call Israel. Herod wanted to be called the king of the Jews. See, when Matthew writes this story, if you don't know the historical setting, you don't feel the pinch. You don't feel what he is saying as strongly as you might. Herod went to Rome in order to get the emperor Augustus to favor him by expanding Galilee to include Jerusalem and all the other surrounding areas so that he would be called the king of the Jews. And he had a lot of opposition in Rome, by the way. Herod was not a well-liked man. I think people, kind of like your dog, you know, when someone comes to the house with evil intentions, dogs kind of feel that, right? And they'll snarl and say, oh, what's wrong with this? Herod was that kind of person. People's dogs, I think, probably snarled at him. He was a wicked, wicked man. So wicked was Herod 
that after he had been given the land of Palestine and was named the king of the Jews, and when he suspected his own sons of being disloyal, and the reason he suspected that they might be disloyal is because their mother had been disloyal to him, he um, decided that he could kill his own sons to protect his position. Herod was not the sort of man that uh, let family ties get in the way of doing his political work. And so he would execute his own sons to maintain his position. This was Herod. Herod the king. King of the Jews. And now, Herod is ruling in Jerusalem over the Jews. He is an agent of the Roman government and an Edomite. Doubly hated by the Jews. So we remember that. And wise men from the east come, and the rumor is circulating around Jerusalem, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in its rising, and are come to worship him. And now we get an answer to our question, what's so troubling about Christmas? And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. Matthew tells us that he was agitated. The word means very strongly upset, stirred up within him. This really provoked Herod. It really shook him from the core of his being that a rumor is out in the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews, a rumor that a king of the Jews has been born. But I'm the king of the Jews, Herod says. And so if the Jews are talking this way, someone is fomenting a revolt. And now you know there's going to be trouble. In fact, if we read on in the story, and that's why I wanted to expand our reading this morning, to remind you, when Herod could not find this one who had been born king of the Jews, what sort of man was he? Well, what would you expect from a man who would kill his own sons to protect his position? Herod didn't think anything of issuing a decree to kill all the children two years and younger in the area of Bethlehem. Because Herod wanted no one to compete with him. Herod had his own ideas of how the world should run. Herod had his own ideas as to what should come to him in this world, what his life should be like. And the birth of Jesus Christ challenged Herod's complacency and Herod's self-sufficiency and Herod's self-centeredness. And so he was troubled greatly. I want to add something here that I think many Christian pastors fail to add and should be, and that's that Herod should have been troubled. That's right. Someone was born, and that birth should trouble a man like Herod. If you'll turn to Luke, the first chapter, I think you'll get an idea of why it is that if Herod understood his Jewish theology, and if Herod understood the nature of the one who's being born, he would be troubled. Luke, chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 30 to 33. This, of course, is the announcement of the angel unto Mary, that she's going to give birth to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. 
The reason why I think some pastors don't stress enough that Herod had reason to be upset is because I think some pastors don't understand that Jesus came to be king as well. Their understanding of the saving work of Jesus Christ is sadly a very stunted, a very truncated idea of salvation. Their idea of salvation, you see, fits into any kind of political circumstance, any kind of social circumstance on earth, because Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't touch the externals of life. Christianity is a private, internal thing of the Spirit. Their understanding of salvation is very much like that of Plato's or the Neoplatonic writers following Plato, where salvation is a matter of your spirit escaping from this world, escaping from this body, going back to what we would call heaven or the realm of the ideals, and there not having any contact with time and space. But that has never been the biblical idea of salvation. It is not in the Old Testament, it is not in the New Testament, the idea of salvation. Jesus came into this world to be a Savior. Yes, to take care of our internal problems, to take care of our guilt, to make us right with God. But he came into this world not to reign simply in some invisible, out-of-the-way fashion that would never be a challenge to the affairs of men. He came into this world to take the throne of David and there to reign over all the earth forever. Jesus came a king into this world. And that's what Mary is told from the very beginning. One is going to be born that will finally take the throne of David and fulfill all the covenant promises of the Old Testament. In him, we are going to have a changed world. In him, we're going to have changed lives. In him, the nations will bow down. And God will be exalted. And redemption will apply to his people. And so this is the promise to Mary. Mary is later going to sing about this. We read that in Luke, the first chapter as well, what's called the Magnificent of Mary. And it's worth reading in its entirety if we had the time. But I'd like you to look just at verse 32 of Luke 1 this morning. Mary is praising God. Her soul is magnifying the Lord for the way he has dealt with her. She is a maiden of low estate, and she is being exalted to be um, praised by all generations as the mother of the Savior. And she says, His mercy is like that. He raises up the lowly, and He puts down the exalted. Verse 32, He hath put down princes from their thrones, and hath exalted them of low degree. And so the humble are brought up and those who exalt themselves are put down, and that includes princes. And so here you have the mother of the Savior told, the child that will be born to you will have the throne of David and will rule forever there. And she sings that God is going to put down princes as he raises up the lowly. And so if we understand the Christmas story, I think we can at least understand. I don't think I could get you to sympathize. I wouldn't want you to sympathize with Herod, but you can understand that he did have good reason to worry. If a king of the Jews has been born, that meant Herod was going to be put down. Someone else would be put on the throne of David, someone who would now rule in righteousness and justice forever. Well, the story in Matthew's gospel, as you know, goes on that um, Herod lies to the wise men. He tells them that he's very interested in worshiping this one who is king of the Jews. The wise men, they don't buy that. They're warned of God. Herod's a hypocrite. He really 
intends evil for this child. And so they go to their own country by night another way. And in fact, Joseph and Mary must leave by night another way now to Egypt. And Herod, realizing that he's been taken advantage of, kills the Bethlehem infants. And we have that very touching verse there in Matthew uh, chapter 2, quoting Jeremiah the prophet, a voice in Ramah weeping, Rachel weeping for her children because they are not. The death of the Bethlehem infants prophesied by Jeremiah. Why was Christmas so troubling to Herod the king? We don't have any difficulty seeing the answer here, do we? Herod saw competition in Jesus. Herod knew that if the Christmas story was true, it was going to be a tough time for Herod. He wasn't going to get his way. He wasn't going to get what he wanted out of life. He didn't see things happening that way. And so he took steps, very troubling steps, to relieve his own troubled soul by trying to kill the Christ child. But we've set this up. I've tried to give you an illustration so that you can understand the troubling nature of Christmas, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning because what bothers me about this verse is what follows. Just a very few more words. Would you go back to Matthew 2, verse 3? We read, And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. We understand that now. But what about this? And all Jerusalem with him. Not only was Herod distressed at hearing the news that maybe a king of the Jews had been born, but all Jerusalem was agitated by that as well. All Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. How do you account for that, and what do you make of What is that all about? Let's eliminate something at the very outset. Jerusalem was not troubled in the way that Herod was troubled. That you can take for granted. For you see, Herod was troubled because that meant maybe an Edomite and a Roman agent is going to be put down and the Jews are going to have their own king. You would expect Jerusalem would be in favor of that because Jerusalem hated Herod. Herod had a very tough time keeping the Jews down. Herod executed people in Jerusalem and had revolts rise against them all the time. And so Jerusalem did not sympathize with Herod, saying, Oh, we're going to lose Herod, that wonderful person that's been ruling over us. That isn't why Jerusalem was troubled. Well, then why was Jerusalem troubled? Well, you see, the troubling of Jerusalem, I think, arises from the fact that the people, though they did not like Herod, did not like turmoil even more. And the birth of one who would be called king of the Jews, meant trouble. It meant turmoil. It meant more antagonism. They had seen what Herod would do. They knew the character of this man. And no one wanted days of agitation. No one wanted the kind of uh, uh, difficulty that was going to come upon the city and upon the Jews because of that madman Herod and the way he's going to respond to this. See, the birth of one who was called king of the Jews, when they already had someone called king of the Jews, meant a day of decision for Jerusalem. And have you ever noticed people don't like making hard decisions? People don't like being forced to go this way or that when they're not sure, you see, whether if they go this way, they're going to lose out or maybe things are going to go worse for them. We don't like to be put in that position. Uh, that's one of the 
difficulties uh, companies have in finding good managers. Men who are willing to stand up and say, I'll take the responsibility, I say we do this. And then he's going to let it come down upon him if it turns out that's not successful, that doesn't make money for the company. You know, it's difficult to find people who are willing to say, I'll make a decision. People don't like making decisions. People don't like being forced to say, it's this, not that. People don't like the trouble that comes when there's antagonism between forces. It can be philosophical, it can be political, be military. People don't like antagonism. They don't like hostility. They don't like turmoil. They don't like a day of decision. And I suggest to you that's what those words in Matthew's Gospel mean. Not that they favored Herod, but they didn't like a time of turmoil. They didn't like to see their peace taken away. They didn't want to have the tough choice that would be made if there really were going to be competing kings over the Jews. And so that's what's so troubling about Christmas. Jesus disrupted everything. He upset the apple cart. He didn't let Herod have his own way in this world. Herod's outlook and Herod's self-centeredness was challenged by the birth of Jesus. That's understandable enough. But you see, the birth of Jesus was also a day of decision for the Jews. Who was going to be their king? Unless you think I'm fabricating this or just over-psychologizing this, let's go ahead 30 years to the end of Jesus' life back again in the city of Jerusalem. And when Jesus was brought before Pilate now to be judged of him, the accusation made against Jesus is what? That he makes himself out to be a king. Pilate has him in a private interview. Pilate says, you're accused of being a king. And Jesus says, you've said it. That's right. I am a king. Not the kind of king you understand, to be sure. Not one who rules or comes to power in the way that you're suspecting me, but I am a king. Pilate, nevertheless, for all of his spiritual dullness, is not willing to execute Jesus. And so he brings Jesus before the crowds and offers to set him free and makes the mistake of saying, what should I do with your king? To which the crowd responds one of the most terrible chants throughout the history of mankind. We have no king but Caesar. Jesus was born to be king of the Jews. And set before the Jews, they said, crucify him. We'd rather have Caesar than him. Jerusalem does not want a day of decision. I think this is true politically for most peoples and most cultures throughout history, too. I don't wish to exculpate the Jews from this, but you need to understand that the Romans didn't particularly like the Roman emperors either. They were not really nice people, those emperors. But the Romans were willing to accept authoritarian rule in Rome over against the civil wars and the economic problems and the turmoil of their day. People are more interested in not facing a day of decision and not making responsible decisions, more interested in having a blasé, unchallenged, unboat-rocking life than to have to make a decision. And so the Jews would rather have Caesar. They'd rather have Pilate. They'd rather have Herod than to see things agitated, than to see a day of decision come where they'd have to choose. And when they would choose... The Bible tells us they chose against Jesus Christ. He would not be their king. 
And it troubled them to no end that when he was crucified, what was put over the cross was the king of the Jews. Well, we have the same troubling about Christmas in our day. I realize that if we were to take a uh, survey and you were to ask people what's so troubling about Christmas, they wouldn't come up with much of an answer. But I want to suggest to you that Christmas is found to be very troubling to people. Christmas is troubling in both of the ways that we've seen already this morning. It's first of all troubling to the kings of this earth. There are not many who rise to positions of political power who are willing to say that Jesus is king. After all, they've worked pretty hard to get where they are. And they probably got to where they are not by following the principles of righteousness and truth that Jesus represents. And so the idea of following Jesus Christ in a genuine sense, I realize there are a lot who will say they are Christians and want to go through this outward verbal profession. But, of course, most who do that will tell us that Jesus is king in some spiritual internal sense. He's certainly not king over them in their official capacities because, well, we have a separation of church and state in our land, don't we? We can't uh, have a politician who stands up and says, I make my decisions because Jesus tells me this is what I'm supposed to do. The king of kings has directed us. Here's his word. Here's his will. And that's what I'm trying to put into effect. I mean, that would not be favored by the people in our day. You see, all Jerusalem is agitated with Herod the king. Isn't that right? We don't have many politicians who follow Jesus because there's a natural aversion to saying that he rules over you when you think you rule over everybody else. But more importantly, I think we have the same troubling in our day, not just in a political sense about the birth of Jesus, but I think people are troubled at the birth of Jesus. And you know how I know that? It's because they won't tell the story fully and accurately. When we get around to celebrating Christmas, we have a little bit different version of what took place than what the historians tell us. Now you see Christmas is a time where we remember the hostility of this world, how a little baby had to be born in a stable because no one was good enough to give up their room in the inn. We have a story about cold, hostile political forces in a day where people should have been set free. We have a story about the dreadful days of Jesus and how the message of the birth of that child was we should be nicer to one another. We should have peace on earth and goodwill to men. That is not the Christmas story. Oh, I know that the pieces have been taken from the Christmas story, but that's not the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a troubling one. And it troubles people today. And that's why you don't get them telling the story properly. You should expect this in Luke, the second chapter, verse 34. In the early days of Jesus, when he was presented in the temple, Simeon, the priest, blessed the Christ child and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which is spoken against. Simeon said, you know what I see in this child? A day of decision. I see in this child a watermark that's going to divide men. Some will rise and some will fall because of this child. This child, you see, is going to make the difference as to whether people are right with God or whether they're going to be put down by God. And people don't like that in our day. They don't like to have to make a decision about Jesus. Is he really the son of God? 
Well, if he is the Son of God, that's a frightening fact. You know why? Because that means God's visited us. God has come into this world. He's come very close. But you see, theists in general don't really like God close at hand. We like a transcendent God. We like a God that's very far away. In fact, a deistic God would be just right for us Americans. A God, you see, who is just good enough to wind up this universe and set the laws of nature in order so we could take advantage of them, we could live in some kind of peace and security and with scientific advances and technology. That's really great. We want that kind of God. But we would like him to be far away. We wouldn't like him to meddle in our lives. We especially wouldn't like him to be looking into our lives and to know us very well. We wouldn't like him to reveal his word to us with such detail, with such precision, with such relevance that his commandments actually pinch, actually put it on us that we've got to do something different, that we've got to have changed lives. And so we like God far away. But if Jesus is the very Son of God, God came into this world. He came into this world in a frightening way. He's come in very human form. And he knows us and can speak to us and is close to us. But you see, there's something further. come into this world, then there must be something wrong here. And we don't like to acknowledge that. You see, Jesus is a Savior. But he's not a Savior in the way that the Jews would like. He didn't come to lead some kind of army against Rome. He didn't come to save people from their economic woes by handing out money. Jesus came as a Savior who acknowledged, that makes men acknowledge that they are sinful and unclean and they need his blood to be shed for them. But that's very insulting to human pride to have to say that. Not only would we prefer to have God far away, but if God's going to come close, we wouldn't want to have to admit what we are before him. But Jesus requires that. And thirdly, Jesus came not just as a king among kings, not just as one good teacher among teachers, not simply one prophet out of the whole lot of those, but Jesus came and said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. And that means you can't have Jesus and Buddha. You can't have the Bible and the Upanishads. And we don't like that. We don't like to have to make a decision. We don't want to have to lay a bet as to eternity, as it were, and find out we were wrong. We would rather have a religious uniformity that says that, well, all religions are the same, they just say it differently. All religions have their prophets, and basically religion's all about what? peace on earth and goodwill to men, surprisingly enough. But you see, the message of the angels was not peace on earth and goodwill to men. You've heard me say this before. I need to remind you of it again because you'll miss the Christmas story if I don't correct that translation. The original Greek says not peace on earth, goodwill to men. It says peace on earth to men of God's goodwill. It's an awkward expression, but it's full of theological meaning. Very important what that means is that the peace is for men on whom God has shown favor. And of course, those to whom God does not show favor, well, that means they are going to be put down. That means they're going to be rejected. That means they're going to face everlasting destruction in hell. And we don't like that. But Christmas 
necessitates it. If you tell the Christmas story the way it's meant to be told, if you tell it with historical and theological accuracy, the birth of Jesus is agitating to men because then they have to deal with who he is and who he claims to be. Their eternal destinies are on the line. And so Christmas is troubling, not only to the Herods of this world, but to all those who don't want a day of decision, who don't want to see turmoil, who don't want to have to decide yes or no and have their eternal destinies resting upon it. There are those, of course, for whom Christmas is trouble-free. Those for whom Christmas represents a time of merriment. And they are very simply, according to the Bible, those who keep covenant with God, believe His Word, and trust His Son. It's interesting that though Matthew tells us of how Jerusalem, all the Jewish people, and Herod himself were troubled, that the announcement of the Christmas message is one of mercy and peace and joy. Luke 1, 54. In Luke, the first chapter, at verse 54, Mary, singing her Magnificent, says, He hath given help to Israel his servant, that he might remember mercy. Oh, those are tender words, that God might remember mercy. That's why he gave help to Israel. That's why he sent his son. In Luke 1.68, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, sings his Benedictus. And in Luke 1.68, we read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he hath visited and wrought redemption for his people. Verse 72, this redemption means to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And then the angels, of course, in Luke, the second chapter, verse 10, when they sing to the shepherds, they say, Be not afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men in whom he is well pleased. The Christmas message is one of merriment. It's one that reminds us that God remembers mercy. God has visited his people to redeem them and to give them great joy. For you see, if Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus has accomplished in our lives what he promised to do by saving us, making us right with God and ruling over us, then of course there aren't any troubles really, ultimately, that can beset us. Peter could say, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Christmas reminds us about a God who remembers mercy, a God who cares, who lifts all of our troubles away. A traditional English Christmas carol sings, God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And that's not a message just for this time of the year. It's for all year round. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Remember Christmas Day, not just at Christmas time, but at any time you've got distress. Remember that Christ the Savior was born. And that's tidings of comfort and joy to us. So is Christmas going to be trouble-free for you this year? Or is it going to be a troublesome time? A day where your idea of the world and your view of God and your understanding of your life is being challenged and you're going to have to make a decision about the claims of Jesus Christ. 
For those who keep covenant with God and believe His word, it's the fulfillment of all the promises. It's the lifting of all of our cares. It's the remember that a Savior has been born who is truly the King of the Jews and the King of our lives too. Let's be among the band of believers down through the centuries who not only in this season of the year but all year long enjoy and express to each other the merriment of a Merry Christmas because we're not troubled but relieved of all of our troubles by the coming of God into this world. We want Him to be near. He has visited us for our salvation. For us, you see, on that first Christmas night, the Savior was born, one who is Lord at His birth, and thus brought the dawn of redeeming grace into our world. And because of that silent, holy night, for us, Christmas is not troubling, but all is calm and bright. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for that first Christmas night. Thank you for visiting your people and remembering mercy and coming to relieve us of all of our trials, all of our sorrows and our woes. We thank you for taking our troubles away because you dealt with the greatest of our troubles, you dealt with our sin. We thank you for coming and loving us when we were yet your enemies. We thank you for coming into this world and living a life among men who would reject you and crucify you. We thank you for giving up your life on our behalf and then sending your spirit into our hearts to change our attitude toward you, that we would not be troubled by your claims, but rather submit to them, believe them, indeed trust in your very word that you're the Savior of men. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for taking all of our cares away. Give us true joy as we remember that first Christmas night. Give us joy not just this week, not just in a holiday once a year, but give us joy as your people all year round, because we're not troubled by the coming of God into this world. For we pray in your precious name. Amen.